Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. You can always check out the pictures of the Halifax on the World of Warbirds Facebook page. And while you're there, why not like the page so that you don't miss anything? And why not share it to anyone who might be interested? If you've listened to the episode on the Hawker Hurricane, then you know that I have a soft spot for the underdog. The Hawker Hurricane played second fiddle to the Supermarine Spitfire, and as we discovered in the Hurricane episode, for solid reasons. During the course of the war, the Spitfire was able to be adapted and modified, while the Hurricane remained essentially a late 1930s fighter that was slotted into secondary roles by mid-war. At least with the Hurricane, people can actually see it, can see it in museums, even see them flying. Like the Hurricane, the Halifax similarly plays a second fiddle to a more famous sister aircraft, the Avril Lancaster. However, unlike the Hurricane, the Halifax has faded into utter obscurity. I have been a dedicated Warbird fan for over a quarter century, and although I've seen many static Lancasters in museums and on pedestals, and I've even seen the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum's Lancaster named Vera flying on several occasions, I have never laid eyes on a Halifax. And I'm left with this question. Why did the Halifax get pushed aside from public memory so hard? Were they produced in fewer numbers than the Lank? Were they really so inferior? What's going on here? So let's shed some light on this forgotten warrior. Design and Development The Handley Page Company had a long track record building big bombers. The company had been formed in 1909 by Sir Frederick Handley Page. Prior to researching this episode, I had always figured that Handley Page had been formed between two people, one named Handley and the other named Page, but no, it was one man. Interesting side note, Sir Frederick is credited with inventing the leading-edge wing slot, which reduces the stall speed of an aircraft, allowing better low-speed handling. In 1936, the British Air Ministry put out specification P.13-36 for a capable medium bomber for worldwide use. Handley Page had plenty of experience with big bombers, having built the Handley Page Type O during the First World War. This giant was a twin-engine biplane with pilot and two gunners and could carry 2,000 pounds of bombs. The Type O was used in a variety of roles, being used to attack ports, railway targets, airfields, submarines, and shipping. Handley Page built 600 of the model. At the very end of the war, Handley Page built the V-1500, which was a bigger version of the Type O, it had four engines, with a pusher and puller engine in two nacelles, could carry 7,000 pounds of bombs, and fly 1,300 miles. This monster was meant as a night-heavy bomber, but the war ended before it could be used to bomb Germany from airfields in the UK. They built about 35 of the type, and they were known as the Super Handley in the RAF. After the end of World War I, some Type O's were converted for civilian use as passenger and cargo transport and for airmail. These aircraft were so ubiquitous 
that to say Handley Page was a shorthand to say big airplane. Sort of like how we say a Boeing now, just to mean a big airplane. So, with specification P.13-36, Handley Page seemed to be the perfect company to make a new bomber. The RAF was looking for a twin-engine bomber at the time and was trusting in the development of the high-power Rolls-Royce Vulture engine. The promise of this engine was significant. Its design was an X-24 configuration, which basically took two Rolls-Royce Peregrine-derived V-12 blocks and arranged them in an X-shape, all turning a common crankshaft. This super-engine was supposed to produce 1,750 horsepower, which would mean that two engines would be sufficient to power the new heavy bomber. Handley Page began drawing up blueprints. February 1937 was probably the first time that the so far unnamed Halifax was to be outshone by its sister from Avro, when that company's submission, which would later be called the Avro Manchester, was selected as the primary candidate for production, and Handley Page's aircraft was chosen as second string. In April, orders were placed for two prototypes of each type, just three months later, in July, Handley Page designers must have been very frustrated when they were told by the Air Ministry to go back to the drawing board to redesign the airplane to use four engines instead of the two Rolls-Royce Vultures. It turns out that the Vulture was having many problems with lubrication, dissipating heat, and it tended to have too many connecting rod failures. The Vulture's ambitious power output was also never realized, and it ended up being derated down to about 1,500 horsepower instead. Although the primary aircraft of the contract, the Avro Manchester, would continue with the Vulture, the Ministry wanted the second-string Handley Page airplane to experiment with using four of Rolls-Royce's other engine, the Merlin. Although the designers were not happy, they went back to their drawing boards, and by the end of the year they had mock-ups, and by March 1938 they were building prototypes. The Ministry was so pleased with Hadley Page's work that they ordered 100 of the new airplane right off the drawing board. Prototypes So, what did the first prototype, serial number L7244, look like? It was a mid-wing monoplane with twin tail fins and rudders. It was of an all-metal construction, with a smooth, stressed skin, although the flight control surfaces were fabric-covered instead. The fuselage contained a 22-foot bomb bay, which contained most of the aircraft's payload, and the cockpit was flush with the upper fuselage. It was powered by four Rolls-Royce Merlin engines, two spaced evenly on each wing. Perhaps because of the earlier engine swap from the Vulture to the Merlin, Handley Page designed the new aircraft to be able to handle other engines just in case. In the prototype, the Rolls-Royce Merlins were turning a Rotol-built compressed wood constant speed propeller, giving a maximum speed of 265 miles per hour at 17,500 feet. The pilot sat in the left seat of the cockpit, and there was a folding seat on the right side, for the co-pilot position, 
which was occupied by the flight engineer for critical periods such as takeoff. In the nose was the bomb aimer's compartment and navigation position, with one crew member doing both of these jobs. Behind the cockpit was the wireless operator's compartment and the flight engineer's station. Just aft of this compartment was two installed bunks, originally intended for crew members to rest, but in practice was used more for treating injured crew. The Mark I had two 303-inch Vickers K machine guns in waist positions, which brings to mind the waist positions of the B-17. The maximum bomb load was 14,500 pounds, which was carried in a somewhat unorthodox way, with most of the bombs being carried in a main bomb bay within the fuselage, and some being carried in three mini bomb compartments in the inboard sections of each wing. Because of this, the maximum size of the individual bombs, which could be carried by the Halifax, was limited to 2,000 pounds. In August 1940, the second prototype, L-7245, was flown with a complete armament and operational equipment, and the type was accepted into the RAF. At the time, the practice was to name heavy bombers after major towns, and so the aircraft was formally named the Halifax, most fittingly in a ceremony by none other than Lord and Lady Halifax. Production the UK put a huge effort into building as many Halifaxes as possible for its strategic bombing offensive against Germany, and this meant that many more parties than Handley Page would be involved. A special Halifax group was put together to manage the over 600 subcontractors who built components for the Halifax or assembled them. In total, 6,178 Halifaxes were built by five different main manufacturers, including Handley Page, Ferry Aircraft, London Aircraft Production Group, Roots Securities, with English Electric actually building the most at 2,145 aircraft. At its peak production, a new Halifax was being built every hour. Improvements were made to the Halifax throughout its operational life, and these are reflected in the various marks of the aircraft. Although there were subversions of each mark, for simplicity's sake, I've bunched them all together into the marks. The Mark II saw the removal of the nose turret, it being replaced by a molded perspex nose, and the addition of a four-gun dorsal turret, with the waist gun positions being removed. The tail fin shape was also tweaked in order to try to fix some rudder imbalance, and Merlin 22 engines were installed. The most numerous mark was the Mark III, which used the powerful 1650 British Hercules 16 radial engine. It also had rounded wingtips. There was also a transport version with a cargo area instead of a bomb bay and space inside for 11 passengers. And there was a paratroop version with space for 16 paratroopers and their kit. A pure passenger transport version was built, and this was known as the Handley Page Halton. Operational History In late 1940, the first Halifaxes began service with No. 35 Squadron RAF, and it first dropped bombs on the enemy on the night of the 10th to 11th March 1941, when six aircraft bombed the dockyards of Le Havre in France. By the end of 1941, 
daylight bombing was suspended because of unsustainable losses due to intensifying fighter opposition. Bomber Command would switch its efforts to night attack. Halifax has played a major role in the bomber offensive against Germany. Especially with the arrivals of the Mark III's with their more powerful engines, which increased their performance, Halifax's seemed to perform service everywhere, area bombing at night, pathfinding for the main bomber force, switching to daylight operations after D-Day for performing tactical-type attacks upon enemy troops and gun emplacements and knocking out launch sites for V-1 flying bombs. Halifaxes were used for parachute attacks, towing gliders, transporting fuel, and near the end of the war, attacking the Reich's oil supply. It was even used as an electronic warfare aircraft, using airborne radio countermeasures to harass and confound the Luftwaffe. Finally, Halifaxes were also used for special operations, parachuting agents and weapons into occupied Europe for the Special Operations Executive, or SOE. Many Halifaxes were used by Coastal Command for reconnaissance, anti-submarine duties, meteorological services, and to lay mines outside enemy-held ports. Halifaxes fought right up until the end of the conflict and remained in service with Coastal Command and RAF Transport Command, the Royal Egyptian Air Force, and the Armée de l'Air until 1952, although the majority of them were declared surplus in 1947. The last country to use the Halifax in a military role was Pakistan. Its Air Force continued to operate them until 1961. So, no story of the Halifax would be complete without the inevitable controversy of comparison with the Lancaster. It's a complicated story. Stephen J. Harris took 22 pages to do it in his article entitled The Halifax and Lancaster in Canadian Service, which was published in the journal Canadian Military History. It's also a moving target as both the Lank and the Halibag were being heavily modified during the course of the war and what they were being asked to do was being changed based on the particular battle or offensive, and the enemy fighter and flak opposition were also changing, increasing and decreasing. So what is clear is that Bomber Harris seemed to have a grudge against Handley Page from the beginning, and against the Halifax in particular. Certainly, much of his aggravations with the type were justified, the rudder problem was one that, even with modification, would never really go away. If a Halifax pilot threw his machine into a sudden and dramatic maneuver in order to try to escape from flak or night fighters, they were likely to unbalance, lock on, and eventually produce a spiral dive from which it was difficult to recover. Also, during most of its operational life, it was slightly slower and had a lower ceiling than the Lancaster which meant that it was more vulnerable to attack. Its exhaust flames were brighter and allowed the Halifax to be spotted from 500 yards. Bomber Harris complained that he had to use his more valuable Lancasters as a safety blanket to protect them from the more vulnerable Halifaxes. The Halifax also just wasn't able to carry the same bomb load as the Lancaster. Not only was its smaller and divided bomb bay 
incapable of carrying the big 4,000-pound cookie bombs or any of the exotic bigger weapons of the RAF, but again, on average, over its operational life, it would only deliver 100 tons of bombs on German targets, while a Lancaster would deliver 150. It also took more labor to build one. It took 420 man-hours to build a Halifax, while it took 330 man-hours to build a Lancaster. In the cold light of Bomber Command's ledger, the Halifax was a poorer investment. So then, why did Britain keep building Halifaxes and supplying them to the squadrons, if they were inferior? The main problem was that of conversion. If the British aircraft industry was to start converting its production to Lancasters, then there would be an overall drop in bomber production during that time while the factories rejigged. For British leadership, all the way up to Churchill, this was unacceptable. Sure, don't commit any new production to the Halifax, but also don't stop the factories building them from doing so. It was better to keep producing the inferior aircraft in numbers than to have an overall drop in numbers. Also, there was some worry that there wouldn't have been sufficient Merlin engines to equip any more Lancasters. It was convenient that the Halifaxes used an alternate engine in the Bristol Hercules. The Merlin was in great demand for use in fighter command as well as in the Mosquito. Lastly, not everything was dismal with the Halifax. Firstly, crew survivability was better in, than in the Lancaster. If things went very bad, there was some evidence that the Halifax was able to survive better than the Lank, which had a tendency to break up in flight, and also the escape hatches in the Halifax were far easier to use than the Lancaster. In the end, the British were wedded with their existing bomber types during the war, and Bomber Command was able to work with the Halifax's advantages and disadvantages, diverting them to do heavy bomber tasks connected with Operation Overlord, and this freed up the Lanks to continue their deep penetration raids on Germany. Survivors It's really rather remarkable that this type of aircraft, which was produced in such great numbers, would only be represented today by only three survivors. Only two of those are actually restored, and none of them are airworthy. Today I'm going to focus on the story of NA-337. I'm going to rely heavily on the account of this aircraft found on the National Air Force Museum of Canada's website, and for that I am truly grateful to them. On the 5th of March, 1945, Halifax Mark 7, serial number NA-337, arrived at RAF 644 Squadron at Tarrant Rushton, Dorset, in the southeast of England. A week and a half later, on the 24th of March, 1945, this Halifax took part in Operation Varsity, which was the last major Allied airborne operation of World War II. Varsity was the airborne component of the larger Operation Plunder, which was the crossing of the Rhine River. For this mission, it towed a Hamilcar glider that carried a Dodge truck and an artillery piece. After this, it flew on three supply drop operations to aid resistance forces in Denmark and Norway. On April 23, 1945, 
Halifax NA-337 was assigned its fourth and what was to be its final mission. It was to fly by night to Norway on a special operations executive support operation requiring the dropping of 13 containers and two packages on a drop zone in Mikkelberget in Norway. At around noon, the pilot, 20-year-old Flight Lieutenant Alexander Turnbull, told his crew to eat and get some rest, as they were to be flying that night. At 1600, the crew was briefed on their mission. It was NA-337's regular crew that would be flying that night. The navigator, Flight Lieutenant Walter Reginald Mitchell, was given the route to be taken and the precise latitude and longitude of the drop zone. They received weather information from the meteorological office, including data on wind speed, direction, and cloud. The wireless operator, Flight Sergeant Alec Naylor, got the latest frequencies and call signs. The flight engineer, Flight Sergeant Gorinwe Amen Bassett, got his data on fuel load and the canisters and packages to be delivered. Bomb aimer, Flight Sergeant Gordon Russell Tuckett, was given the Morse code letter that the reception committee would flash from the ground. Flight Sergeant Thomas Whiteman, the rear gunner, was advised of the latest enemy fighter attacks. At 1900, the crew arrived at their machine and began doing their pre-flight checks, and by 1925, the British Hercules engines began roaring to life, one by one. At 1947, Flight Lieutenant Turnbull taxied the ship into position on the runway, and after a short delay, at 1950, opened up the throttles to full power. NA-337 roared down the runway. At 2100 hours, they were feet wet over the North Sea, heading for Denmark, and the navigator, Flight Lieutenant Mitchell, got a G-fix in order to help plot his course. Once over the ocean, the gunner, Flight Sergeant Thomas Whiteman, got permission to test his guns. He was a lucky man to still be flying, or even alive. The previous year, on January 31, 1944, he had been the gunner on an Armstrong Whitworth Whitley Mark V, which had crashed in a farmer's field. The entire crew had been killed in the crash, and Mitchell had been obliged to walk out to look for help. And now he was headed out into danger again. At 21.15, Turnbull, the pilot, started descending his Halifax to just 200 or 300 feet above the water. They went quiet as radio silence was imposed. At about one in the morning, the Halifax was approaching the drop zone and bomb aimer Flight Sergeant Gordon Russell Tuckett was looking intently for the signal from the ground. He's a bit of a world traveler. Having done some training at a British flight training school in Mesa, Arizona in the USA, and he's also been posted to number 31 RAF Bombing and Gunnery School in Picton, Prince Edward County, Ontario, Canada. Ten minutes later, he saw the signal F flashed by torchlight in Morse code from the drop zone. The drop is a go. Tuckett guides the pilot over the drop zone and the 13 canisters and two packages are dropped. Mission accomplished. They turn southwest and towards home. It all happened so fast. At 1.30 in the morning, the Halifax is approaching the railroad bridge 
at Minnesund. An anti-aircraft crew hears and then begins firing at the sound of the approaching bomber. They are hit by flak in the starboard wing, midway between the outer and inner engines, and number four, the outboard starboard engine, catches fire. The gunner asks if he can fire at the flak guns, but Turnbull refuses, saying that it will make them even more visible to the guns. At the same time, he is shutting down and feathering the number four engine. Hope rises and then falls as number three then bursts into flames. The whole wing is on fire. They are going down. Only ten minutes after being hit, Turnbull is ordering his crew into ditching positions and he sets her down in Lake Mosha. A few minutes later, the gunner, Flight Sergeant Whiteman, the lucky man who has already survived a crash, regains consciousness and climbs out onto the Halifax's wing. He pulls out the Halifax's dinghy and gets in. He searches for his crewmates, but in the dark he can't find anyone. He is alone, and when daylight breaks he realizes that he is the sole survivor of the crash. Again. He is rescued and captured as a POW. The aircraft, however, sank in 700 feet of water, being reduced to only a memory of Whiteman and a legend for the people of the nearby Norwegian village. Fast forward to 1995, when a team composed of Canadians and Norwegians called Halifax 57 Rescue used a custom-made lifting rig called Moby Grip to raise the Halifax from the depths. Why was the team called 57 Rescue? No, they didn't start in 1957. It's because every part on the Halifax is numbered with a digit that starts with 57. The raised bomber was found to be in remarkably good shape. In fact, Whiteman's thermos of coffee was still found intact and still containing the coffee. The parts of the aircraft were flown to Canada by the RCAF and underwent a complete restoration. And after 350,000 man-hours of labor, NA-337 was back to her former glory and on display at the National Air Force Museum of Canada in Trenton, Ontario, actually not that far from where Flight Sergeant Gordon Russell Tuckett had done his Canadian training. A restored halibag is nice. But wouldn't it be nice to see and hear one fly again? One can only hope. <laughs>